You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's open our Bibles to the Scripture readings this afternoon. First of all, we read from Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. One occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Let's also turn to Hebrews chapter 9. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand, the table, and the consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the Most Holy Place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the Ark were the carabim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, That is to say, not a part of this creation. 
He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more, then, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it, because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet, wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll in all the people. He said, This is the blood of the covenant, which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. It was necessary, then, for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year, with blood that is not his own, then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all, at the end of the ages, to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once, and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for Him. This afternoon I preach to you God's Word as it's been confessed by the church in Lord's Day 18 of the Hutterberg Catechism. What do you confess when you say He ascended into heaven? That Christ, before the eyes of His disciples, was taken up from the earth into heaven and that He is there for our benefit until He comes again to judge the living and the dead. Is Christ then not with us until the end of the world as He has promised us? Christ is true man and true God. With respect to His human nature, He is no longer on earth. But with respect to His divinity, majesty, grace, and spirit, He is never absent from us. But are the two natures in Christ not separated from each other if his human nature is not present wherever his divinity is? Not at all. For his divinity has no limits and is present everywhere. 
So it must follow that his divinity is indeed beyond the human nature which he has taken on, and nevertheless is within this human nature and remains personally united with it. How does Christ's ascension into heaven benefit us? First, he is our advocate in heaven before his Father. Second, we have our flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that he, our head, will also take us, his members, up to himself. Third, he sends us his spirit as a counter-pledge, by whose power we seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, and not the things that are on earth. Beloved congregation, Christ Jesus our Lord. basic scene, I think, is familiar to all of us, should be. Supper is over. Dad asks for the Bible. And this time he opens to the passage we read from Acts 1. He reads about our Lord's final moments with his disciples before being carried away by a cloud into heaven. And the father asks his children, so where is the Lord Jesus Christ today? And perhaps they would say, he's in heaven, of course. And indeed, that's what the text says, isn't it? He is seated at the right hand of the Father. That's also what we confess with the Apostles' Creed. The Lord Jesus Christ ascended into heaven. We also confess that in the Nicene Creed, which we recited a few moments ago. But in our Heidelberg Catechism, we learn that there is more here than meets the eye. Yes, it's true. Our Lord did ascend into heaven. There's more to it than that. He still remains with His church today. How and why is this so? And so I preach to you God's Word with this theme, the Lord Jesus Christ ascended into heaven, yet also remains with us on earth. We'll look at, first of all, the fact of His ascension, second, its character, and then finally, its purpose. Well, in response to the first question of our Lord's Day, the Catechism gives a very simple answer which outlines the facts of what happened at Christ's ascension. Before the eyes of His disciples, He was taken up into heaven. Simple answer reflects the biblical account of the facts. Luke told of the ascension already in his Gospel, but in the passage which we read together from Acts, he gives some more details of what exactly happened. Luke introduces his second book. He says that his first book described all that Jesus Christ began to do and to teach. We've noticed that before, that this book of Acts should really be called the Acts of Jesus Christ through the Apostles. The Christ who ascended into heaven continued to work here on earth. And we'll look at that a little bit further on. After these introductory words, Luke moves right into the account. He tells us that when they had come together at Bethany, the disciples asked the Lord Jesus a question about the kingdom of Israel. Was He now, after He had risen from the dead, was He now going to establish His kingdom here on earth? Was He going to get rid of the Romans? The Lord tells them that it's not for them to know exact times and dates. They will receive power, but it will be the power of the Holy Spirit. The disciples will be Christ's witnesses all over the earth, 
beginning with Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. And then what happened was most amazing. Before the very eyes, He was taken up into heaven by a cloud which hid Him from their sight. They stood speechless and astounded at what they had just seen. The Lord Jesus, who had lived and walked among them, the One who healed the withered hand this morning in Mark 3, the One who died on the cross and rose from the dead, He was now taken up into heaven in a way that would have brought back thoughts of Enoch and Elijah and two men dressed in white. Angels, speak to them. Men of Galilee, why do you stand there looking up into the sky? This same Jesus who was taken from you into heaven, come back in the same way you've seen Him go into heaven. These two messengers from God tell the disciples that Christ is gone, but He's coming back. They don't say when He'll come back. But the way the angels speak, they're telling the apostles to start the work laid out for them by Christ. Those are the facts of the ascension, and they're well known. And it's worth noting that Luke presents the account of Christ's ascension in a very simple way. He wants to bring across to his readers, like with everything else he describes, that this is a historical event. Luke is writing about something that really, truly happened. It's important to realize that because there are many people who do question whether Jesus Christ really ascended into heaven. I mean, who can believe that? Even if He did rise from the dead, who can believe that He went up in some clouds up into the sky to a place called heaven? We know that heaven is not up there in the clouds or even immediately beyond our atmosphere. We've traveled to the edge of our solar system. We haven't found it. Maybe the early church could believe those sorts of things, but we're so much more advanced in our knowledge of the universe. So, some people say, this story must have been made up. But of course, that way of thinking doesn't take the Bible seriously, does it? If we read the text, it clearly tells us that Jesus Christ was taken up into heaven. That's also what we confess. The disciples saw it happen. They heard the words of the angels. They were eyewitnesses. They were ear witnesses. And they passed the information on to Luke. And he recorded it, not just once, but twice in his two books. Yet some people question whether heaven in this text refers to the place where God dwells. Some say that heaven here is simply the sky. Jesus Christ just went up into the sky. That's simply wrong. You could look ahead to Acts 7, verse 55, where Stephen looks up and he sees heaven opened and the Lord Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Hebrews 9.24, which we read, states that Christ entered into heaven itself. The Scriptures are clear that Jesus Christ ascended into heaven before the eyes of His disciples. We don't know or we don't understand the, the details of how exactly this all happened, the mechanics of it all, or the physics of it all. We don't know the exact location of heaven or how the Lord Jesus Christ traveled there. We don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us those things. So it's not important for us. What is important 
is that it happened. That He did ascend into heaven. The place where God dwells. That's the critical point in question and answer 46. And yet there have always been those who, as we've already noticed, outrightly deny it or undermine it in certain ways. Even in the time when the catechism was written, there were some people who said, Christians, who said that Jesus Christ did not actually ascend to the literal place that we call heaven. Perhaps it would surprise you, but some of those people were Lutherans. Not all Lutherans, but at least some of them maintained that heaven in the context of the ascension implies a change in the condition of Christ in His natures. And so when the creed says that the Lord Jesus Christ ascended into heaven, they said that it means that the Lord Jesus Christ took on a new character. Consequently, some Lutherans almost seem to deny that Jesus Christ went to a literal place called heaven. At the very least, the formula of Concord, which is a Lutheran confession, says that the right hand of God to which Christ ascended is not a fixed place in heaven, but rather it is the almighty power of God. Now how did they explain this? Well, the Lord Jesus, as you know, has two natures. Human nature, divine nature. Some of these Lutherans, they were called Genesio Lutherans, in case you're interested, said that at His ascension, the human nature took on aspects of the divine nature. And so, His human nature also became present everywhere. The formula of Concord, that Lutheran confession that I mentioned a moment ago, states that, and here's a quote, also as a man, he is present to all creatures. That means his human nature became present everywhere, just as his divine nature is present everywhere. Now there's a lot behind this idea. There's a lot of background here, and we're going to talk about it some more in a few moments. For now, let's just see how this doesn't fit with what we read from Hebrews 9. It so clearly says there that the Lord Jesus Christ is in heaven with no qualifications, with no exceptions. And elsewhere in the Scriptures, we read Christ telling His disciples that there will be a time when He is no longer bodily with them. His human nature won't be with them anymore. Our catechism sees this teaching of some Lutherans, these Genesio Lutherans, as being unscriptural. And that's why we have four questions and answers on the ascension, whereas we only have one on the resurrection. It was an important issue in the days of Ursinus and Olivianus, the authors of our catechism. But it continues to be important today. For today we have many liberal theologians who outright deny the ascension of Christ. They think that the church just made up these stories about a nice man named Jesus from Nazareth who taught some good things. Perhaps he taught some revolutionary things. And he ended up dying as a martyr. However, unlike the Lutherans, the liberals don't take the Bible seriously. They build up their ideas on the shifting sands of unbelief. And with the confession of our faith, 
in Lord's Day 18, we stand against these ideas. We maintain that Christ ascended into heaven. He is there for our benefit until He returns to judge the living and the dead. And do you know why it's so important for us to maintain that confession? Well, obviously, first of all, because we have to hold on to the truth of Scripture. Scripture teaches us that if Jesus Christ did not ascend into heaven, we would have no one to intercede for us before God's throne. As we learn from the letter to the Hebrews, Jesus Christ ascended into heaven to be our great high priest. He stands between a holy God and us, sinful people. He brings forward His own blood as the sacrifice to pay for our sins. He refutes all the accusations of the devil. And He's got plenty of them. He's got lots of ammunition to work with. Without Christ there, that work would not be done. Without the ascension, our faith would be just as much in vain as if the resurrection had not taken place. As if Christ did not really ascend into heaven with His body. If He did not go into the heavenly tabernacle, then who is our high priest? Without His ascent into heaven, things would be hopeless. You see, the Scriptures teach that the ascension really did happen, and it was totally necessary. And thus, we too, we believe it today. And that brings us to consider the character of His ascension. That's not easy for us to understand. And this is especially because of the two natures of our Savior, true God and true man. How does all this fit together? Well, our catechism gives us an answer in question and answers 47 and 48. Question 48 begins by drawing on the promise of Christ in Matthew 28, 20. Didn't Christ say that He would be with His disciples until the close of the age? And is He then not also with us? Us, till the end of the age, till the end of the world. The first thing our catechism does is state that Christ has two natures, both God and man. Almost everyone will agree with that. That's been the the position of the Christian church for hundreds of years. But then, see what our catechism does with that. It says that His human nature is no longer on earth. That's clear from Scripture passages like Matthew 26.11. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have Me. Now, it's interesting because the Lord Jesus said that right after He had had His body anointed with perfume. Very expensive perfume. That's not going to be possible after His ascension because His flesh, His body, His human nature will be in heaven. And indeed, that's where it's at. Today, as we sit here in this church building, our flesh is in heaven. Imagine that. A man like us in many ways, this morning we considered the fact that he has emotions like we do, man like us, yet without sin or the effects of sin, 
He is at God's right hand. He is ruling over the universe. Ruling all things. Amazing. But there's more to it. Because with respect to His human nature, He did ascend into heaven. But we confess that with His, with respect to His divine nature, He is never absent from us. He remains with us always, exactly as He promised at the end of Matthew 28. Now, how can that be possible? Well, first of all, the Lord Jesus Christ is one person of the triune God. This is the triune God who states in Jeremiah 23.23 that He fills heaven and earth. He is a God near at hand. In Psalm 139, David exclaims that there is no place in the universe that he can go to flee from God's presence. As we confess in Article 1 of the Belgian Confession, God is infinite. He fills the universe with His presence. And so it is that since the Lord Jesus belongs to the triune God, the same may be said for Him. His presence is not restricted to where His flesh or His human nature is. Because He is God, He is omnipresent. And we also should not lose sight of the very important role of the Holy Spirit in this. In His Spirit, He is never absent from us. In John 14, 16-18, which we, we sang a version of that in hymn 30, the Lord Jesus Christ promises that He will send the Holy Spirit to His disciples. The Lord Jesus is departing, but He will return in the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's why He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. That's important. Christ is with us in the presence of His Spirit. And when we face trials and troubles, we can be comforted by that fact, can't we? The Spirit is there. He leads us and He guides us. He directs us to God's Word. And in that way, our Savior is never absent. He's with us all the way, right to the end and beyond. But someone learned church history very well. Someone brings an objection here to what the catechism says. Good student of theology knows a heresy when he, when he sees one. And we find that objection in question and answer 48. And it's this, doesn't, doesn't the catechism separate the two natures of Christ? When we say that His human nature is no longer on earth, whereas His divinity still is. Well, this was exactly the accusation that the Lutherans directed against the Reformed people in the time the Catechism was written. The Lutherans said that the Reformed teaching about Christ's ascension, well, that's basically the heresy that was taught by Nestorius in the early years of the church. Nestorius was condemned by the church because he separated Christ's two natures. And so aren't the Reformed doing exactly the same thing? Now the background of this controversy is in the Lord's Supper. You may remember that the Lutherans said that Christ's body was present in 
and under the bread and the wine. We call that consubstantiation. Christ's body being present in and under the bread and the wine. And that's why the Lutherans insist that Christ did not bodily ascend into a literal heaven. The Reformed denied that Christ's real flesh and blood was present in the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper. And now that's why we have these questions and answers in our catechism. Ursinus and Olivianus are maintaining the biblical Reformed position on the Ascension, but they're doing that in order also to maintain the biblical Reformed position on the Lord's Supper. And so how do they answer the accusation of heresy? That's what it is. Historianism is a heresy. How do they answer that accusation from the Lutherans? Well, the answer of question answer 48 is somewhat difficult to understand. I think the catechism students will no doubt agree that it can definitely be difficult to memorize. To put it as simple as possible, his divine nature extends beyond his human nature, but is still united with it. Maybe the, the most helpful way to think of this is with two concentric circles. You know, one circle inside another circle. His divinity encompasses or includes the human nature which remains in heaven. His divinity also extends to every place of the universe, as we saw earlier. And that includes heaven. This then means that the divine and human natures are not separated, but they are still personally joined with one another. The Lord Jesus has ascended into heaven, but yet He also remains with us according to His promise. The Catechism explains to us very broadly how it can be possible for both our Lord to be in heaven and for Him to be here with us. And then finally, the Catechism also goes on to explain how this all benefits us. That's our third point, where we consider the purpose. Catechism is often like that, isn't it? Practically oriented. So here too we get a question about the benefit. What's the advantage? Well, in the first place, you could refer to what we read from Hebrews 9. In verse 15 of that chapter, we read that Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. Mediator, that means He is the one who intercedes between God and us, much like Moses did in the old covenant for the people of Israel. Closely related to the idea of mediator is the idea of an advocate. An advocate is like a mediator in that he speaks up for another party in a dispute. Say that he's like a defense lawyer in a courtroom setting. Certain charges have been laid, but he's going to defend his client against those charges. He has his client's best interests at heart. We then also say that the picture of Christ as high priest in Hebrews 9, that that also fits this picture. Christ has our best interests at heart. He's our advocate. He defends us against all the accusations of the devil. He brings forward His blood as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. The old covenant 
had the ever-flowing blood of goats and rams, but the new covenant has the blood of the Lamb of God, which was shed once for all. That blood is brought before the Father as proof that the Son has paid the full price. We need this advocate in heaven, loved ones. Without Him there for us, we are lost in our sins. And the accusations of the devil stand. Then we remain under God's wrath. But that's not true of us. He is our advocate in heaven. Believe and trust in Him, each and every one of you. And then there is no fear. And there's peace and comfort. That's the first benefit of which our catechism speaks. The second one is closely related. We have our flesh in heaven as a pledge. A pledge is a guarantee or a promise. When you buy something, sometimes a guarantee comes with it. A promise that if you're not satisfied with it, you can bring it back and you get your money back. And so we also have a sort of a guarantee in heaven. It's a promise. Of course, this guarantee has nothing to do with money or getting anything back. The promise is that just as our flesh is in heaven in the person of the Lord Jesus, so we too, someday, we will experience the same. We are guaranteed a heavenly homeland. So often we forget that we don't really belong here in this world, this world of sin. We forget that we're pilgrims. We start living as if we really belong here. It becomes rather comfortable for us here. Let's not lose sight of the heavenly homeland where our inheritance waits for us. That heavenly homeland is guaranteed for us because our flesh is in heaven. And that gives us hope. And it gives us eager anticipation, doesn't it? And it also gives us motivation to carry on as pilgrims in this land that isn't ours. When we reflect on Christ's ascension, we have much to be thankful for. We have a Savior who loves us, who is ruling us, interceding for us, guiding our lives with His Spirit and Word. We're so rich in Him. And so... For the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, we can truly say, praise God. Let us pray. Lord Jesus in heaven, we praise you for ascending to the Father's right hand before the eyes of your apostles. We thank you that you are there for our benefit until you return again to judge the living and the dead. Please return quickly to bring salvation to those who are waiting for you. We thank you for being our advocate before the Father. We're comforted knowing that we have a sympathetic high priest in you. We thank you for your flesh and your spirit, guarantees for us, pledges of your love. Above all, we thank you for your presence among us. We're glad to know that each day you are near in your divinity, majesty, grace, and spirit. Savior, guard us in your truth. 
Help us with your word and spirit to believe the promises in your word. Increase our faith. Help our unbelief. We pray for the glory of your name. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.